CD2 There was a row of alarm clocks on the table by Jeremy's bed. He did not need them, because he woke up when he wanted to. They were there for testing. He set them for seven and woke up at 6.59 to check that they went off on time. Tonight he went to bed early with a drink of water and the grim fairy tales. He had never been interested in stories at any age and had never quite understood the basic concept. He'd never read a work of fiction all the way through. He did remember, as a small boy, being really annoyed at the depiction of Hickory Dickory Dock in a rag book of nursery rhymes because the clock in the drawing was completely wrong for the period. He tried to read grim fairy tales. They had titles like How the Wicked Queen Danced in Red Hot Shoes and The Old Lady in the Oven. There was simply no mention of clocks of any sort in any of them. Their authors seemed to have a thing about not mentioning clocks. The glass clock of Bart Schuschein, on the other hand, did have a clock, of a sort, and it was odd. A wicked man, readers could see he was wicked, because it said he was wicked, right there on the page, built a clock of glass, in which he captured time herself. But things went wrong because there was one part of the clock, a spring, that he couldn't make out of glass, and it broke under the strain. Time was set free, and the man aged ten thousand years in a second and crumpled to dust, and, not surprisingly in Jeremy's opinion, was never seen again. The story ended with a moral. Large enterprises depend upon small details. Jeremy couldn't see why it couldn't just as well have been it's wrong to trap non-existent women in clocks, or it would have worked with a glass spring. But even to Jeremy's inexperienced eye, there was something wrong with the whole story. It read as though the writer was trying to make sense of something he'd seen or been told and had misunderstood. And, ha! Although it was set hundreds of years ago, when even in Überwald there were only natural cuckoo clocks, the artist had drawn a long-case clock of the sort that wasn't around even fifteen years ago. The stupidity of some people. You'd laugh if it wasn't so tragic. He put the book aside and spent the rest of the evening doing a little design work for the Guild. They paid him handsomely for this, providing he promised never to turn up in person. Then he put the work on the bedside table by the clocks. He blew out the candle. He went to sleep. He dreamed. The glass clock ticked. It stood in the middle of the workshop's wooden floor, giving off a silvery light. Jeremy walked around it, or perhaps it spun gently around him. It was taller than a man. Within the transparent case, red and blue lights twinkled like stars. The air smelled of acid. Now his point of view dived into the thing, the crystalline thing, plunging down through the layers of glass and quartz. They rose past him, their smoothness becoming walls hundreds of miles high, and still he fell between slabs that were becoming rough, grainy, full of holes. The blue and red light was here too, pouring past him, and only now was there sound. It came from the darkness ahead, a slow beat that was ridiculously familiar, a heartbeat 
magnified a million times. Chum. Chum. Each beat slower than mountains and bigger than worlds, dark and blood-red. He heard a few beats, and then his fall slowed, stopped, and he began to soar back up through the sleeting light until a brightness ahead became a room. He had to remember all this. It was all so clear once you saw it, so simple, so easy. He could see every part, how they interlocked, how they were made. And now it began to fade. Of course it was only a dream. He told himself that and was comforted by it. But he had gone to some lengths with this one, he had to admit. For example, there was a mug of tea steaming on the nearby workbench, and the sound of voices on the other side of the door. There was a knocking at the door. Jeremy wondered if the dream would end when the door was opened, and then the door disappeared and the knocking went on. It was coming from downstairs. The time was 6.47. Jeremy glanced at the alarm clocks to make sure they were right, then pulled his dressing gown around him and hurried downstairs. He opened the front door a crack. There was no one there. Dad, down here, mister. Somewhere lower down was a dwarf. Name a clockson, it said. Yes? A clipboard was thrust through the gap. Sign here, where it says, sign here, thank you. OK, lads. Behind him, a couple of trolls tipped up a handcart. A large wooden crate crashed onto the cobbles. What is this? said Jeremy. Express package, said the dwarf, taking the clipboard. Come all the way from Uberbout. Must have cost someone a packet. Look at all them seals and stickers on it. Can't you bring it in? Jeremy began, but the cart was already moving off with the merry jingle and tinkle of fragile items. It started to rain. Jeremy peered at the label on the crate. It was certainly addressed to him, in a neat round hand, and just above it was the seal with the double-headed bat of Uberwald. There was no other marking, except, near the bottom, and upside down, the words, This side up. Then the crate started to swear. It was muffled, and in a foreign language, but all swearing has a certain international content. Um, hello? said Jeremy. The crate rocked and landed on one of the long sides with extra cursing. There was some thumping from inside, some louder swearing, and the crate teetered upright again with the alleged top the right way up. A piece of board slid aside, and a crowbar dropped out and onto the street with a clang. The voice that had lately been swearing said, "'If you would be so good.' Jeremy inserted the bar into a likely-looking crack and pulled. The crate sprang apart. He dropped the bar. There was a... a creature inside. "'I don't know,' it said, pulling bits of packing material off itself. Eight bloody days with no problems, and those idiots get it wrong on the doorstep.' It nodded at Jeremy. "'Good morning, sir. I suppose you are Mr. Jeremy?' "'Yes, but my name is Eagle, sir. My credentials, sir.' A hand like an industrial accident, held together with stitches, thrust a sheaf of papers towards Jeremy. He recoiled instinctively, and then felt embarrassed and took them. "'I think there's been a mistake,' he said. "'No, no mistake,' said Igor, pulling a carpet-bag out of the ruins of the crate.' 
you need an assistant, and when it comes to assistance, you cannot go wrong with an eagle. Everyone knows that. Could we go in out of the rain, sir? It's making my knees rust. But I don't need an assist... Jeremy began, but that was wrong, wasn't it? He just couldn't keep assistance. They always left within a week. Morning, sir, said a cheery voice. Another cart had pulled up. This one was painted a gleaming hygienic white and was full of milk churns and had Ronald Soak Dairyman painted on the side. Distracted, Jeremy looked up at the beaming face of Mr Soak, who was holding a bottle of milk in each hand. One pint, squire, as per usual, and perhaps another one if you've got company. Uh, 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 yes, thank you. And the yoghurt is particularly fine this week, squire, said Mr Soak encouragingly. Uh, I think not, Mr Soak. Need any eggs, cream, butter, buttermilk or cheese? Not as such, Mr Soak. Right you are then, said Mr Soak, unabashed. See you tomorrow then. Uh, yes, said Jeremy, as the cart moved on. Mr Soak was a friend, which in Jeremy's limited social vocabulary meant someone I speak to once or twice a week. He approved of the milkman because he was regular and punctual and had the bottles at the doorstep every morning on the stroke of 7am. Uh, uh, goodbye, he said. He turned to Igor. How did you know I needed... He tried, but the strange man had gone indoors and a frantic Jeremy tracked him down in the workshop. Oh, yes, very nice, said Igor, who was taking it all in with the air of a connoisseur. That's a Turnbull Mark III micro-lathe, isn't it? I saw that in their catalogue. Very nice, indeed. I didn't ask anyone for an assistant, said Jeremy. Who sent you? We are Igor's, sir. Yes, you said. Look, I don't... No, sir. We are Igor's, sir. The organisation, sir. What organisation? For placements, sir. You see, sir, the thing is, an eagle often finds himself between masters, through no fault of his own, you see, and, on the other hand... You have two thumbs, breathed Jeremy, who had just noticed and couldn't stop himself. Two, on each hand. Oh, yes, sir, very handy, said Igor, not even glancing down. On the other hand, there is no shortage of people wanting an eagle, so my aunt Igorina runs our select little agency. For lots of eagles, said Jeremy. Oh, there's a fair number of us. We're a big family, Igor handed Jeremy a card. He read, We are eagles, a spare hand when needed. The old rat house, Bart Schuschein, Seamail, Yes Master Uberwald. Jeremy stared at the semaphore address. His normal ignorance of anything that wasn't to do with clocks did not apply here. He'd been quite interested in the new cross-continent semaphore system after hearing that it made quite a lot of use of clockwork mechanisms to speed up the message flow. So you could send a clax message to hire an Igor. Well, that explained the speed, at least. Rat house, he said. That means something like a council hall, doesn't it? Normally, sir. Normally, said Igor reassuringly. 
Do you really have semaphore addresses in Uberwald? Oh, yes. We are ready to grasp the future with both hands, sir. And four thumbs. Yes, sir. We can grasp like anything. And then you mailed yourself here? Certainly, sir. We eagles are no strangers to discomfort. Jeremy looked down at the paperwork he'd been handed, and a name caught his eye. The top paper was signed, in a way at least. There was a message in neat capitals, as neat as printing, and a name at the end. He will be useful, Le Jean. He remembered. Oh, Lady Le Jean is behind this. She had you sent to me. That's correct, sir. Feeling that Igor was expecting more of him, Jeremy made a show of reading through the rest of what turned out to be references. Some of them were written in what he could only hope was dried brown ink. One was in crayon, and several were singed around the edges. They were all fulsome. After a while, though, a certain tendency could be noted amongst the signatories. This one is signed by someone called Mad Dr. Scoop, he said. Oh, he wasn't actually named Mad, sir. It was more like a nickname, as it were. Was he mad, then? Who can say, sir, said Igor calmly. And crazed Baron Ha-Ha, it says under reason for leaving that he was crushed by a burning windmill. Case of mistaken identity, sir. Really? Yes, sir. I understand the mob mistook him for screaming Dr. Berserk, sir. Oh, ah, yes. Jeremy glanced down. Who you also worked for, I see. Yes, sir. And who died of blood poisoning? Yes, sir, caused by a dirty pitchfork. And Nipsey the Impaler? Er, would you believe he ran a kebab shop, sir? Did he? Not conventionally, though, sir. You mean he was mad too? Ah, well, he did have his little ways, I must admit, but an Igor never passes judgment on his master or mistress, sir. That is the code of the Igors, sir, he added patiently. It would be a funny old world if we were all alike, sir. Jeremy was completely baffled as to his next move. He'd never been very good at talking to people, and this, apart from Lady Lejean and a wrangle with Mr. Soak over an unwanted cheese, was the longest conversation he'd had for a year. Perhaps it was because it was hard to think of Igor as coming under the heading of people. Until now, Jeremy's definition of people had not included anyone with more stitches than a handbag. "'I'm not sure I've got any work for you, though,' he said. "'I've got a new commission, but I, I'm not sure how... "'Anyway, I'm not insane.' "'That's not compulsory, sir. "'I've actually got a piece of paper that says I'm not, you know.' "'Well done, sir. "'Not many people have one of those.' "'Very true, sir.' "'I take medicine, you know.' "'Well done, sir,' said Igor. "'I'll just go and make some breakfast, shall I, "'while you get dressed, master?' "'Jeremy clutched at his damp dressing-gown. "'I'll be down shortly,' he said, and hurried up the stairs. "'Igor's gaze took in the racks of tools. 
there was not a speck of dust on them. The files, hammers, and pliers were ranged according to size, and the items on the workbench were positioned with geometrical exactitude. He pulled open a drawer. Screws were laid in perfect rows. He looked around at the walls. They were bare except for the shelves of clocks. This was surprising. Even dribbling Dr. Vibes had a calendar on the wall, which added a splash of colour. Admittedly, it was from the Acid Bath and Restraint Company in Ugly, and the colour it splashed was mostly red, but at least it showed some recognition of a world outside the four walls. Igor was puzzled. Igor had never worked for a sane person before. He'd worked for a number of... well, the world called them madmen, and he'd worked for several normal people in that they only indulged in minor and socially acceptable insanities, but he couldn't recall ever working for a completely sane person. Obviously, he reasoned, if sticking screws up your nose was madness, then numbering them and keeping them in careful compartments was sanity, which was the opposite. Ah, no, it wasn't, was it? He smiled. He was beginning to feel quite at home already. Lute say the sweeper was in his garden of five surprises, carefully cultivating his mountains. His broom leaned against the hedge. Above him, looming over the temple gardens, the big stone statue of Wen the Eternally Surprised sat with its face locked in its permanent, wide-eyed expression of, yes, pleasant surprise. As a hobby, mountains appeal to those people who in normal circumstances are said to have a great deal of time on their hands. Lutze had no time at all. Time was something that largely happened to other people. He viewed it in the same way that people on the shore viewed the sea. It was big, and it was out there, and sometimes it was an invigorating thing to dip a toe into, but you couldn't live in it all the time. Besides, it always made his skin wrinkle. At the moment, in the never-ending, ever-recreated moment of this peaceful, sunlit little valley, he was fiddling with the little mirrors and shovels and morphic resonators and even stranger devices required to make a mountain grow to no more than six inches high. The cherry trees were still in bloom. They always were in bloom here. A gong rang somewhere back in the temple. A flock of white doves took off from the monastery roof. A shadow fell over the mountain. Lutze glanced at the person who had entered the garden. He made the perfunctory symbol of servitude to the rather annoyed-looking boy in novice's robes. "'Yes, master,' he said. "'I'm looking for the one they call Lutze,' said the boy. "'Personally, I don't think he really exists.' "'I've got glaciation,' said Lutze, ignoring this. "'At last!' See, master, it's only an inch long, but already it's carving its own little valley. Magnificent, isn't it? Yes, yes, very good, said the novice, being kind to an underling. Isn't this the garden of Lutze? You mean Lutze, who is famous for his bonsai mountains? The novice looked from the line of plates to the little wrinkled smiling man. You are Lutze, but you're just a sweeper. I've seen you cleaning out the dormitories. I've seen people kick you. Lutze, apparently not hearing this, 
picked up a plate about a foot across on which a small cinder cone was smoking. "'What do you think of this, master?' he said. "'Volcanic, and it is bloody hard to do, excuse my clatching.' The novice took a step forward and leaned down and looked directly into the sweeper's eyes. Lutze was not often disconcerted, but he was now. "'You are Lutze?' "'Yes, lad, I am Lutze.' The novice took a deep breath and thrust out a skinny arm. It was holding a small scroll. "'From the abbot, er, venerable one.' The scroll wobbled in the nervous hand. "'Most people call me Lutze, lad, or sweeper. "'Until they get to know me better, some call me get out of the way,' said Lutze, "'carefully wrapping up his tools. "'I've never been very venerable, except in cases of bad spelling.' "'He looked around the saucers for the miniature shovel he used for glacial work "'and couldn't see it anywhere. "'Surely he'd put it down just a moment ago. "'The novice was watching him with an expression of awe mixed with residual suspicion.' A reputation like Lutze's got around. This was the man who had, well, who had done practically everything if you listened to the rumours. But he didn't look as though he had. He was just a little bald man, with a wispy beard and a faint, amiable smile. Lutze patted the young man on the shoulder in an effort to put him at his ease. "'Let us see what the abbot wants,' he said, unrolling the rice paper. "'Oh, you are to take me to see him, it says here.' A look of panic froze the novice's face. What? How can I do that? Novices aren't allowed inside the inner temple. Really? In that case, let me take you, to take me, to see him, said Lutze. You are allowed into the inner temple, said the novice, and then put his hand over his mouth. But you're just a... Oh. That's right. Not even a proper monk, let alone a dong, said the sweeper cheerfully. "'Amazing, isn't it? "'But people talk about you as if you were as high as the abbot. "'Oh, dear me, no,' said Lutze. "'I'm nothing like as holy. "'Never really got a grip on the cosmic harmony.' "'But you've done all those incredible... Uh, "'I didn't say I'm not good at what I do,' said Lutze, "'ambling away with his broom over his shoulder. "'Just not holy. Shall we go?' "'Uh, Lutze?' said the novice as they walked along the ancient brick path. Yes? Why is this called the Garden of Five Surprises? What was your name back in the world, hasty young man? said Lutze. Newgate. Newgate Lud Ven... Lutze held up a warning finger. Ah? Sweeper, I mean. Lad, eh? Ain't more pork lad? Yes, sweeper, said the boy. The suddenly dejected tone suggested he knew what was coming next. "'Raised by the thieves' guild, one of lads, lads.' The boy, formerly known as Newgate, looked the old man in the eye, and when he replied, it was in the sing-song voice of someone who'd answered the question too many times. "'Yes, sweeper, yes, I was a foundling. "'Yes, we get called lads, lads and lasses after one of the founders of the guild. "'Yes, that's my adopted surname. "'Yes, it was a good life, and sometimes I still wish I had it.' Lutze appeared not to hear this. "'Oh, sent you here. "'A monk called Soto discovered me. "'He said I had talent. "'Marco? The one with all the air? "'That's right. "'Only I thought the rule was that all monks were shaved. 
Oh, Soto says he is bald under the hair, said Lutze. He says the hair is a separate creature that just happens to live on him. They gave him a field posting really quickly after he came up with that one. Hard-working fellow, mind you, and friendly as anything, providing you don't touch his hair. Important lesson there. You don't survive in the field by obeying all the rules, including those relating to mental processes. And what name were you given when you were enrolled? Lobsang, then, uh, sweeper. Lobsang, lud. Uh, yes, sweeper. Amazing. So, Lobsang, lud. You tried to count my surprises, did you? Everybody does. Surprise is the nature of time, and five is the number of surprise. Yes, sweeper. I found the little bridge that tilts and throws you into the carp pool. Good, good. And I have found the bronze sculpture of a butterfly that flaps its wings when you breathe on it. That's toe. There's the surprising way those little daisies spray you with venomous pollen. Ah, yes. Many people find them extremely surprising. And I believe the fourth surprise is the yodeling stick insect. Well done, said Lutze, beaming. It's very good, isn't it? But I can't find the fifth surprise. Really? Let me know when you find it, said Lutze. Lobsang Lud thought about this as he trailed after the sweeper. The Garden of Five Surprises is a test, he said at last. Oh, yes, nearly everything is. Lobsang nodded. It was like the Garden of the Four Elements. Every novice found the bronze symbols of three of them in the carp pond, under a rock, painted on a kite. But none of Lobsang's classmates found fire. They didn't appear to be a fire anywhere in the garden. After a while, Lobsang had reasoned thus. There were, in fact, five elements as they had been taught. Four made up the universe, and the fifth, surprise, allowed it to keep on happening. No one had said that the four in the garden were the material four, so the fourth element in the garden could be surprised at the fact that fire wasn't there. Besides, fire was not generally found in the garden, and the other signs were truly in their element. So he'd gone down to the bakeries and opened one of the ovens, and there... Glowing red-hot below the loaves was fire. Then I expect that the fifth surprise is there is no fifth surprise, he said. Nice try, but no cylindrical smoking thing, said Lutze. And is it not written, oh, you are so sharp you'll cut yourself one of these days? Um, I haven't read that in the sacred texts yet, sweeper, said Lobsang uncertainly. No, you wouldn't have said Lutze. They stepped out of the brittle sunlight into the deep cold of the temple and walked on through ancient halls and down stairways cut into the rock. The sound of distant chanting followed them. Lutze, who was not holy and therefore could think unholy thoughts, occasionally wondered whether the chanting monks were chanting anything or were just going, ah, 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 ah. You could never tell with all that echo. He turned off the main passage and reached for the handles of a pair of large, red, lacquered doors. Then he looked behind him. Lobsang had stopped dead some yards away. Coming? But not even dongs are allowed in there, said Lobsang. You have to be a third Jim Ting, at least. 
Yeah, right. It's a shortcut. Come on, it's drafty out here. With extreme reluctance, expecting at any moment the outraged scream of authority, Lobsang trailed after the sweeper. And he was just a sweeper. One of the people who swept the floors and washed the clothes and cleaned the privies. No one had ever mentioned it. Novices heard about Lute Say from their very first day, how he'd gone into some of the most tangled knots of time and unravelled them, how he'd constantly dodged the traffic on the crossroads of history, how he could divert time with a word and use this to develop the most subtle arts of battle. And here was a skinny little man who was sort of generically ethnic, so that he looked as if he could have come from anywhere, in a robe that had once been white before it fell to all those stains and patches, and the sandals repaired with string, and the friendly grin, as if he was constantly waiting for something amusing to happen, and no belt at all, just another piece of string to hold his robe closed. Even some novices got to the level of grey dong in their first year. The dojo was busy with senior monks at practice. Lobsang had to dodge aside as a pair of fighters whirled past, arms and legs blurring as each sought an opening, paring time into thinner and thinner slivers. Yo, sweeper! Lobsang looked around, but the shout had been directed at Lutse. A ting, only just elevated to the third gym by the fresh look of his belt, was advancing on the little man, his face red with fury. "'What for are you coming in here, cleaner of filth? This is forbidden!' Lutse's little smile didn't change, but he reached in his robe and brought out a small bag. "'It's a shortcut,' he said. He pulled a towel of tobacco and, while the ting loomed over him, began to roll a cigarette. "'And there's dirt everywhere, too. I'll certainly have a word with the man who does this floor.' "'How dare your insult!' screamed the monk. "'Back to the kitchens with your sweeper!' Cowering behind Lutse, Lobsang realised that the entire dojo had stopped to watch this. One or two of the monks were whispering to one another. The man in the brown robe of the dojo master was watching impassively from his chair with his chin on his hand. With great and patient and infuriating delicacy, like a samurai arranging flowers, Lutze marshalled the shreds of tobacco in the flimsy cigarette paper. "'Now I reckon I'll go out of that door over there, if you don't mind,' he said. "'Impudence! Then you are ready to fight, enemy of dust!' The man leapt back and raised his hands to form the combat of the hake. He spun round and planted a kick on a heavy leather sack, hitting it so hard that its supporting chain broke. Then he was back to face Lutze. Hands held in the advancement of the snake. Hi, shaw, hi, he began. The dojo master stood up. Hold, he commanded. Do you not want to know the name of the man you are about to destroy? The fighter held his stance, glaring at Lutze. I don't need to know the name of Swiper, he said. Lutze rolled the cigarette into a skinny cylinder and winked at the angry man which only stoked the anger. "'It is always wise to know the name of a sweeper, boy,' said the dojo master. "'And my question was not addressed to you.' Tick. Jeremy stared at his bedsheets. They were covered in writing, his own writing. It's 
trailed across the pillow and onto the wall. There were sketches, too, scored deeply into the plaster. He found his pencil under the bed. He'd even sharpened it. In his sleep he'd sharpened a pencil. And by the look of it he'd been writing and drawing for hours, trying to draw a dream. With, down one side of his eiderdown, a list of parts. It had all made absolute sense when he'd seen it, like a hammer or a stick or Wheelbright's gravity escapement. It had been like meeting an old friend, and now... He stared at the scrawled lines. He'd been writing so fast he'd ignored punctuation, some of the letters too, but he could see some sense in there. He'd heard of this sort of thing. Great inventions sometimes did arise from dreams and daydreams. Didn't Hepzibah Whitlow have the idea of the adjustable pendulum clock as a result of his work as the public hangman? Didn't Will Frame Balderton always say that the idea for the fish-tail escapement came after he'd eaten too much lobster? Yes, it had all been so clear in the dream. By daylight it needed a bit more work. There was a clatter of dishes from the little kitchen behind his workshop. He hurried down, dragging the sheet behind him. "'I usually have,' he began. "'Toast, sir,' said Igor, turning away from the range. "'Likely browned, I suspect.' "'How did you know that?' "'An Igor learns to anticipate, sir,' said Igor. "'What a wonderful little kitchen, sir. "'I've never seen a drawer marked spoons.' "'which just had spoons in it.' "'Are you any good at working with glass, Igor?' said Jeremy, ignoring this. "'No, sir,' said Igor, buttering the toast. "'You're not?' "'No, sir. I am bloody amazing at it, sir. "'Many of my masters have needed special apparatus "'not readily obtainable elsewhere, sir. "'What was it you wanted?' "'How would we go about building this?' Jeremy spread the sheet on the table. The slice of toast dropped from Igor's black-nailed fingers. "'Is there something wrong?' said Jeremy. "'I thought someone was walking over my grave, sir,' said Igor, still looking shocked. Uh, "'You haven't actually ever had a grave, have you?' said Jeremy. "'Just a figure of speech, sir, just a figure of speech,' said Igor, looking hurt. "'This is an idea I've... "'I've had for a clock.' "'The glass clock,' said Igor. "'Yes, I know about it. "'My grandfather Igor helped build the first one.' "'The first one? "'But it's just a story for children. "'And I dreamed about it, and... "'Grandfather Igor always said there was something very strange about all that,' said Igor. "'The explosion and everything.' "'It exploded. "'Because of the metal spring.' "'Not exactly an explosion,' said Igor. "'We're no strangers to explosions, sir, us Igors. "'It was very odd. "'And we're no strangers to odd, either.' "'Are you telling me it really existed?' "'Igor seemed embarrassed about this. "'Yes,' he said. "'And then again, no.' "'Things... "'Either exist or they don't,' said Jeremy. "'I am very clear about that. I have medicine.' "'It existed,' said Igor. "'And then, after it did, it never had.' 
This is what my grandfather told me, and he built that clock with these very hands. Jeremy looked down. Igor's hands were gnarled, and now he came to look at them, had a lot of scar tissue around the wrists. We really believe in heirlooms in our family, said Igor, catching his gaze. Sort of hand-me-downs, <laughs> said Jeremy. He wondered where his medicine was. Very droll, sir, said Igor, but Grandfather Igor always said that afterwards it was like a dream, sir. A dream? The workshop was different. The clock wasn't there. Demented Dr. Wingle, that was his master at the time, wasn't working on the glass clock at all, but on a way of extracting sunshine from oranges. Things were different, and they always had been, sir, like it had never happened. But it turned up in a book for children. Yes, sir. Bit of a conundrum, sir. Jeremy stared at the sheet with its burden of scribbles. An accurate clock, that's all it was. A clock that would make all other clocks unnecessary, Lady Lejean has said. Building a clock like that would mean the clockmaker went down in timekeeping history. True, the book had said that time had got trapped in the clock, but Jeremy had no interest whatsoever in things that were made up. Anyway, a clock that measured. Distance didn't get tangled up in a tape measure. All a clock did was count teeth on a wheel or light. Light with teeth. He'd seen that in a dream. Light not as something bright in the sky, but as an excited line going up and down like a wave. Could you build something like this, he said. Igor looked at the drawings again. Yes, he said, nodding. Then he pointed to several large glass containers around the drawing of the central column of the clock. And I know what these are, he said. In my... I mean, I imagined them as fizzing, said Jeremy. Very, very secret knowledge, those jars, said Igor, carefully ignoring the question. Can you get copper rods here, sir? In Ankh-Morpork, easily. And zinc? Lots of it, yes. Sulfuric acid? By the carboy, yes. I must have died and gone to heaven, said Igor. Just put me near enough copper and zinc and acid, sir, he said, and then we shall see sparks. My name, said Lutsay, leaning on his broom as the irate Ting raised a hand, is Lutsay. The dojo went silent. The attacker paused in mid-bellow. I, I, oh, shit! The man did not move, but seemed instead to turn in on himself, sagging from the marshal's stance into a kind of horrified, penitent crouch. Lutze bent over and struck a match on his unprotesting chin. What's your name, lad? he said, lighting his ragged cigarette. His name is Mud, Lutze said the dojo master, striding forward. He gave the unmoving challenger a kick. Well, Mud, you know the rules. Face the man you have challenged or give up the belt. The figure remained very still for a moment, and then, cautiously, in a manner almost theatrically designed not to give offence, started to fumble with his belt. No, no, we don't need that, said Lutze kindly. 
It was a good challenge, a decent eye and a very passable high E, I thought. Good martial gibberish all round, such as you don't often hear these days. And we would not want his trousers falling down at a time like this, would we? He sniffed and added, especially at a time like this. He patted the shrinking man on the shoulder. Just you recall the rule your teacher here taught you on day one, eh? And why don't you go and clean yourself up? I mean, some of us have to tidy up in here. Then he turned and nodded to the dojo master. While I am here, master, I should like to show young Lobsang the device of erratic balls. The dojo master bowed deeply. It is yours, Lutse the sweeper. As Lobsang followed the ambling Lutse, he heard the dojo master, who, like all teachers, never missed an opportunity to drive home a lesson, say, Dojo, what is rule one? Even the cowering challenger mumbled along to the chorus, Do not act incautiously when confronting little, bald, wrinkly, smiling men. Good rule, rule one, said Lutse, leading his new acolyte into the next room. I have met many people who could have aided it to good advantage. He stopped, without looking at Lobsang Lud, and held out his hand. And now, if you please, you will return the little shovel you stole from my pocket when we first met. But I came nowhere near you, master. Lutse's smile did not flicker. Oh, yes, that is true. My apologies, the ramblings of an old man... Is it not written, I'd forget my own head if it wasn't nailed on? Let us proceed. The floor in here was wood, but the walls were high and padded. There were reddish-brown stains here and there. Um, we have one of these in the novice's dojo sweeper, said Lobsang. But the balls in that are made of soft leather, yes? said the old man, approaching a tall wooden cube. A row of holes ran halfway up the side that faced down the length of the room. And they travel quite slowly, I recall. Ah, uh, yes, said Lobsang, watching him pull on a very large lever. Down below there was the sound of metal on metal, and then of urgent gushing water. Air began to wheeze from joints in the box. These are wooden, said Lutze calmly. Catch one. Something touched Lobsang's ear, and behind him the padding shook as a ball buried itself deeply and then dropped to the floor. "'Perhaps a shade slower,' said Lutse, turning a knob. After fifteen random balls, Lobsang caught one in his stomach. Lutse sighed and pushed the big lever back. "'Well done,' he said. "'Sweeper, I'm not used to,' said the boy, picking himself up. "'Oh, I knew you couldn't catch one,' said Lutse. Even our boisterous friend out there in the dojo wouldn't catch one at that speed. But you said you had slowed it down. Only so that it wouldn't kill you. Just a test, see? Everything's a test. Let's go, lad. Can't keep the abbot waiting. Trailing cigarette smoke, Lutse ambled away. Lobsang followed, getting more and more nervous. This was Lutse the dojo had proved that, and he knew it anyway. He'd looked at the little round face as it gazed amicably at the angry fighter and known it. But just a sweeper? No insignia? No status? Well, obviously status, because the dojo master couldn't have bowed lower for the abbot, but... And now he was following the man along passages where even a monk was not allowed to go on pain of death. 
Sooner or later there was surely going to be trouble. Sweeper, I really ought to be back at my duties in the kitchens, he began. Oh, yes, kitchen duties, said Lotse. To teach you the virtues of obedience and hard work, right? Yes, Sweeper. Are they working? Oh, yes. Really? Well, no. They're not all there cracked up to be, I have to tell you, said Lutze. Whereas, my lad, what we have here, he stepped through an archway, is an education. It was the biggest room Lobsang had ever seen. Shafts of light speared down from glazed holes in the roof, and below, more than a hundred yards across, and tended by senior monks who walked above it on delicate wire walkways, Lobsang had heard about the mandala. It was as if someone had taken tons of coloured sands and thrown them across the floor in a great swirl of coloured chaos. But there was order fighting for survival in the chaos, rising and falling and spreading. Millions of randomly tumbling sand grains would nevertheless make a piece of pattern which would replicate and spread across the circle, rebounding or merging with other patterns and eventually dissolving into the general disorder. It happened again and again, turning the mandala into a silent raging war of colour. Lutze stepped out onto a frail-looking wood and rope bridge. Well, he said, what do you think? Lobsang took a deep breath. He felt that if he fell off the bridge, he'd drop into the surging colours and never ever hit the floor. He blinked and rubbed his forehead. It's evil, he said. Really? said Lutze. Not many people say that the first time. They use words like wonderful. It's going wrong. What? Lobsang clutched the rope railing. The patterns, he began. History repeating, said Lutze. They're always there. No, they're Lobsang tried to take it all in. There were patterns under the pattern, disguised as part of the chaos. I mean, the other patterns. He slumped forward. The air was cold, the world was spinning, and the ground rushed up to enfold him, and stopped a few inches away. The air around him sizzled, as though it was being gently fried. Newgate, lad! Lutzay, he said, the mandala is... But where were the colours? Why was the air wet and smelling of the city? And then the ghost memories faded away. As they disappeared, they said, How can we be memories when we have yet to happen? Surely what you remember is climbing all the way up onto the roof of the Baker's Guild and finding that someone had loosened all the capping stones because that just happened. And the last dying memory said, Hey, that was months ago. No, we're not Lutze, mysterious fallen kid, said the voice that had addressed him. Can you turn round? Newgate managed with great difficulty to move his head. It felt as though he was stuck in tar. A heavy young man in a grubby yellow robe was sitting on an upturned box a few feet away. He looked a bit like a monk, except for his hair, because his hair looked a bit like an entirely separate organism. To say that it was black and bound up in a ponytail is to miss the opportunity of using the term elephantine. It was hair with personality. Mostly, my name's Soto, said the man underneath. Marco Soto, 
I won't bother memorizing yours until we know if you're going to live or not, eh? So, tell me, have you ever considered the rewards of the spiritual life? Right now, certainly, said, yes, Newgate, he thought. That's my name, yes. So why do I remember Lobsang? Um, I was thinking about the possibility of taking up a new line of work. Good Koryamov, said Soto. Is this some kind of magic? Newgate tried to move, but hung, turning gently in the air just above the waiting ground. Not exactly. You seem to have shaped time. Me? How did I do that? You don't know? No. Ha! Will you listen to him? said Soto, as if talking to a genial companion. There's probably the spin time of a whole procrastinator being used up to prevent your little trick causing untold harm to the entire world, and you don't know how you did it? No? Then we'll train you. It's a good life and offers excellent prospects. At least, he added, sniffing, better than those that confront you now. Newgate strained to turn his head further. Train me in what exactly? The man sighed. Still asking questions, kid. Are you coming or not? How? Look, I'm offering you the opportunity of a lifetime. Do you understand? Why is it the opportunity of a lifetime, Mr. Soto? No, you misunderstand me. You, that is Newgate Lud, are being offered, that is by me, the opportunity of having a lifetime, which is more than you will have shortly. Newgate hesitated. He was aware of a tingling in his body. In a sense, it was still falling. He didn't know how he knew this, but the knowledge was as real as the cobbles just below him. If he made the wrong choice, the fall would simply continue. It had been easy so far. The last few inches would be terminally hard. I must admit I don't like the way my life is going at the moment, he said. It may be advantageous to find a new direction. God! The bare-haired man pulled something out of his robe. It looked like a folded abacus, but when he opened it up, parts of it vanished with little flashes of light, as if they'd moved somewhere where they could not be seen. What are you doing? Do you know what kinetic energy is? No. It's what you have far too much of. Soto's fingers danced on the beads, sometimes disappearing and reappearing. I imagine you weigh about a hundred and ten pounds, yes? He pocketed the little device and strolled off to a nearby cart. He did something that Newgate couldn't see and came back. In a few seconds you will complete your fall, he said, reaching under him to place something on the ground. Try to think of it as a new start in life. Newgate fell. He hit the ground, the air flashed purple, and the laden cart across the street jerked a foot into the air and collapsed heavily, one wheel bounced away. Soto leaned down and shook Newgate's unresisting hand. Hardy at all, he said. Any brothers? It does hurt a bit, said the shaken Newgate. Maybe you're a bit heavier than you look. Allow me. Soto grabbed Newgate under the shoulders and began to tug him off into the mists. Can I go and... No. But the guild... You don't exist at the guild. That's stupid. I'm in the guild records. No, you're not. We'll say to that. How you can't rewrite history? Bet you a dollar. What have I joined? 
We're the most secret society that you can imagine. Really? Who are you, then? The monks of history. Huh? I've never heard of you. See? That's how good we are. And that was how good they were. And then the time had just flown past. And now the present came back. Are you all right, lad? Lobsang opened his eyes. His arm felt as though it was being wrenched out of his body. He looked up along the length of the arm to Lutse, who was lying flat on the swaying bridge, holding him. What happened? I think maybe you were overcome with the excitement, lad, or vertigo, maybe. Just don't look down. There was a roaring below Lobsang, like a swarm of very angry bees. Automatically, he began to turn his head. I said don't look down, just relax. Lutse got to his feet. He raised Lobsang at arm's length, as though he were a feather, until the boy's sandals were over the wood of the bridge. Below, monks were running along the walkways and shouting, "'Now, keep your eyes shut, don't look down, and I'll just walk us both to the far side, all right?' "'I, uh, I remembered, back in the city when Soto found me. I remembered,' said Lobsang weakly, tottering along behind the monk. "'Only to be expected,' said Lutze, "'in the circumstances.' "'But I remember that back then I remembered about being here, you and the Mandala. "'Is it not written in the sacred text? "'There's a lot goes on we don't know about, in my opinion,' said Lutze. "'I have not yet come across that one either, Sweeper,' said Lobsang. "'He felt cooler air around him, which suggested they had reached the rock tunnel on the far side of the room. "'Sadly, in the writings they have here you probably won't,' said Lutze. "'Ah, you can open your eyes now.' They walked on, with Lobsang rubbing his head to take away the strangeness of his thoughts. Behind them, the livid swirls in the wheel of colour, which had centred on the spot where Lobsang would have fallen, gradually faded and healed. According to the first scroll of When the Eternally Surprised, when and Clodpool reached the green valley between the towering mountains, and when said, This is the place. Here there will be a temple dedicated to the folding and unfolding of time. I can see it. I can't, master, said Clodpool. When said, It's over there. He pointed, and his arm vanished. Ah, said Clodpool, over there. A few cherry blossom petals drifted down onto Wen's head from one of the trees that grew wild along the streamlets. "'And this perfect day will last for ever,' he said. "'The air is crisp, the sun is bright, there is ice in the streams. Every day in this valley will be this perfect day.' "'Could get a bit repetitive, master,' said Clodpool. "'That is because you don't yet know,' "'How to deal with time,' said Wen. "'But I will teach you to deal with time as you would deal with a coat, "'to be worn when necessary and discarded when not.' "'Well, I have to wash it,' said Clodpool. "'Wen gave him a long, slow look. "'That was either a very complex piece of thinking on your part, Clodpool, "'or you are just trying to overextend a metaphor in a rather stupid way.' "'Which do you think it was?' "'Clodpool looked at his feet. "'Then he looked at the sky. 
Then he looked at Wen. I think I am stupid, master. Good, said Wen. It is fortuitous that you are my apprentice at this time, because if I can teach you, Clodpool, I can teach anyone. Clodpool looked relieved and bowed. You do me too much honour, master. And there is a second part to my plan, said Wen. Ah, said Clodpool, with an expression that he thought made him look wise, although in reality it made him look like someone remembering a painful bowel movement. A plan with a second part is always a good plan, master. Find me sands of all colours and a flat rock. I will show you a way to make the currents of time visible. All right. And there is a third part to my plan. A third part, eh? I can teach a gifted few to control their time, to slow it and speed it up and store it and direct it like the water in these streams. But most people will not, I fear, let themselves become able to do this. We have to help them. We will have to build devices that will store and release time to where it is needed, because men cannot progress if they are carried like leaves on a stream. People need to be able to waste time, make time, lose time, and buy time. This will be our major task. Clodpool's face twisted with the effort of understanding. Then he slowly raised a hand. Wen sighed. You're going to ask what happened to the coat, aren't you? he said. Clodpool nodded. Forget about the coat, Clodpool. The coat is not important. Just remember that you are the blank paper on which I will write. Wen held up a hand as Clodpool opened his mouth. Just another metaphor. Just another metaphor. And now, please make some lunch. Metaphorically already, master. Both. A flight of white birds burst out of the trees and wheeled overhead before swooping off across the valley. There will be doves, said Wen, as Clodpool hurried off to light a fire. Every day there will be doves. Lutze left the novice in the anteroom. It might have surprised those who disliked him that he took a moment to straighten his robe before he entered the presence of the abbot, but Lutze at least cared for people, even if he did not care for rules. He pinched out his cigarette and stuck it behind his ear too. He had known the abbot for almost six hundred years and respected him. There weren't many people Lutze respected. Mostly they just got tolerated. Usually the sweeper got on with people in inverse proportion to their local importance, and the reverse was true. The senior monks... Well, there could be no such thing as bad thoughts amongst people so enlightened, but it is true that the sight of Lutze ambling insolently through the temple did tarnish a few karmas. To a certain type of thinker, the sweeper was a personal insult, with his lack of any formal education or official status and his silly little way and his incredible successes. So it was surprising that the abbot liked him. 
because never had there been an inhabitant of the valley so unlike the sweeper, so learned, so impractical and so frail. But then surprise is the nature of the universe. Lutze nodded to the minor acolytes who opened the big varnished doors. How is his reverence today? he said. Uh, the teeth are still giving him trouble, O Lutze, but he is maintaining continuity and has just taken his first steps in a very satisfactory manner. Yes, I thought I had the gongs. The group of monks, clustered in the centre of the room, stepped aside as Lutze approached the playpen. It was unfortunately necessary. The abbot had never mastered the art of circular ageing. He had, therefore, been forced to achieve longevity in a more traditional way, via serial reincarnation. "'Ah, sweeper!' he burbled, awkwardly tossing aside a yellow ball and brightening up. "'And how are the mountains? Wanna bicky, wanna bicky!' "'I'm definitely getting Vulcanism, Reverend One. It's very encouraging.' "'And you are in persistent good health?' said the abbot, while his pudgy little hand banged a wooden giraffe against the bars. "'Yes, Your Reverence, it's good to see you up and about again. "'Only for a few steps so far, alas. "'Bicket, bicket, what a bicket! "'Unfortunately, young bodies have a mind of their own. "'Bicket!' Uh, "'You sent me a message, Your Reverence. "'It said, put this one to the test. "'And what did you think of our... "'Want bicket, want bicket, want bicket, now!' "'Young Lobsang Lud.' "'An acolyte hurried forward with a plate of rusks.' "'Would you care for a rusk, by the way?' the abbot added. Mm, I see, Bicket.' "'No, Reverend One, I have all the teeth I need,' said the sweeper. "'Lud is a puzzle, is he not? "'His tutors have nicey, Bicket. Mm, mm, Bicket told me he is very talented, but somehow not all there. "'But you have never met him, and don't know his history, and so, mm, Bicket!' "'And so I would value your uninfluenced observations. Mm, "'Bicket!' "'He is beyond fast,' said Lutze. "'I think he may begin to react to things before they happen.' "'How can anyone tell that? "'Want Teddy, want Teddy, want one one a Teddy!' "'I put him in front of the device of erratic balls in the senior dojo, "'and he was moving towards the right hole fractionally before the ball came out.' Some kind of telepathy, then. If a simple machine has a mind of its own, I think we're in really big trouble, said Lutze. He took a deep breath. And in the hall of the mandala, he saw the patterns in the chaos. You'll let a neophyte see the mandala, said Chief Acolyte Rinpo, horrified. If you want to see if someone can swim, push him in the river, said Lutze, shrugging. "'What other way is there?' "'But to look at it without the proper training.' "'He saw the patterns,' said Lutze, "'and reacted to the mandala.' He did not add, "'and the mandala reacted to him.' He wanted to think about that. "'When you look into the abyss, "'it's not supposed to wave back.' "'It was... "'Teddy, teddy, 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 wah! "'Strictly forbidden even so,' said the abbot." Clumsily, he fumbled amongst the toys on his mat and picked up a large wooden brick with a jolly blue elephant printed on it and hurled it clumsily at Rinpo. "'Sometimes you presume too much, sweeper. Look at elephant!' 
there was some applause from the acolytes at the abbot's prowess in animal recognition. He saw the patterns. He knows what is happening. He just doesn't know what he knows, said Lutze doggedly. And within a few seconds of meeting me, he stole a small object of value, and I'm still wondering how he did it. Can he really be as fast as that without training? Who is this boy? End of CD 2